Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. After more than a decade of near zero interest rates, it's now possible to earn income from cash and short-term investments. But where should you park your cash? There are many options, from bank accounts to money market funds to bonds. Each come with their own benefits, risks and quirks. I want to know why we would even hold cash and what makes 2023 a potentially lucrative environment for short-term investments. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is a bank? Okay, let's get into it. So Romin, I read that last week marked the first time since 2007 that cash is paying more than a traditional 60-40 stock bond portfolio, at least for investors in the US. What do you make of that? I think it's worrying from the point of view of equity, because if cash is offering a high rate, then suddenly equity becomes less attractive. And one way to measure equity valuation is to compare it with that cash yield. So if you look at the earnings yield for US stocks, that doesn't look so favourable right now. But I thought cash was trash. Weren't we told this for such a long time? Well, not by me. (laughs) (laughs) But look, in terms of if you inflation adjust it, it's still negative return. That's the problem, which is, you know, if inflation's at 10% and cash is giving you four, well, minus six doesn't sound so great. So why would we hold cash then if we haven't even got the chance to keep up with inflation, at least not at the moment? And I think that's the key point, not at the moment. A lot of the central banks now expect inflation is going to come down a lot over the course of 2023. And if that's true, then suddenly, you know, you are going to end up with a positive real yield. And that's for cash. But you always have to compare things with one another. And at the moment, there just aren't many attractive things out there which give you a pretty good yield and very few things which give you a positive real yield. At the moment, losing a little bit of money is preferable to losing a lot of money. Is that the kind of situation we're in? And if people are nervous, yeah, I think they're going to keep away from risky assets. And, you know, it's still a choppy period. And they've just been bruised by a fairly brutal sell-off in the US. Not from the UK investor point of view, but certainly if you're a US investor. But it's definitely a headwind, isn't it, for risky assets when you can start generating some money, albeit a negative real return. It just feels different emotionally that I've got money coming into my bank account from my cash savings now, whereas I used to get zero, more or less. So let's get into the specifics then. What are some of the reasons we would typically hold cash? Because I think we both agree that over the long term, cash is you know an awful investment, won't keep up with inflation, and you'd be much better in equities or even bonds. Well, it's kind of interesting. If you look at the long-term returns from the Global Returns Yearbook from Credit Suisse, which is published every year, and 2023 has just been published, do have a look at it. You took the day off, didn't you, to read it cover to cover? I did. I did look at it, obviously. <laughs> yeah, so for cash, you get about 0.4% real per year in the US, and that's going back to 1900. And in the UK, you'd have got 0.9. So a bit more than inflation over the long term. But certainly at the moment, it's negative. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not a great yield. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't hold some. I mean, the obvious first reason is as an emergency fund, isn't it? You know, your boiler might break, whatever. Yeah. What you don't want is some kind of investment which might crash if you need it immediately. Like you say, boilers blowing up, roof needing repair, like our roof. In fact, we could almost build a new house with the cost of the roof repair. You should have fixed the roof when the sun was shining. Yeah, fortunately. (laughs) I've just been watching the mould grow on my wall. (laughs) But the other kind of thing might be family emergencies, illness, you lose your job. A lot of these things you'd have to set aside money for. 
and you'd have to set it aside in a form where you can spend it immediately, which is cash. And the key thing with an emergency fund is that it's liquid. You can get to it within the day if you need it. Yep, it's as liquid as it gets if it's cash. Yeah, but it means you need actual cash right, in a bank and not something where you have to go to market and it takes a little while to realise it. That's right. Or move it out of an account with your broker. You know, that could take a few days. Because some people say, oh, maybe I don't need an emergency fund because I've got a massive limit on my credit card and my credit card is my emergency fund. I don't know. Credit can be withdrawn. So I'm always slightly sceptical of that approach. <laughs> and if you lose your job, you know, you might suffer if your credit quality deteriorates pretty quickly. So I think, you know, for certain emergency things, it's very important to have that cash. And having that buffer is very important. It's something we don't usually discuss. Because it's not really investing, is it? It's like the thing you need in place before you even think about investing. You need to have an emergency fund. And don't invest that. (laughs) (laughs) And then you've got the kind of safety net. And then you can take more risk with other stuff. But I think what we usually talk about is dry powder. So if you've got a market crash, this is literally looking down the back of the sofa for a few coppers to invest. And, you know, if you've got more coppers during those crashes, you'll do better. So having that dry powder is sometimes important. But the problem is that it underperforms long term. Yeah, that's the concept of cash drag, isn't it? Yeah. Generally, it's not good to hold money back from the market because you're relying on market timing to outperform. Like it can be done, just not reliably. And if you do have some kind of cash set aside, then you do have this dry powder. And it's something professional managers can't do. They can't set aside cash because of the cash drag. Warren Buffett has a huge cash pile, or did. Well, he's not a fund manager, really. No, no, true. He's an insurance company slash huge mega corp. I don't know what you call it. Magic gnome. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you'd call Berkshire Hathaway. It's a conglomerate holding company. Yeah, that's what it is. Why am I the ones that has to come up with the technical terms these days? (laughs) Although, to be fair, I did just call him a magic gnome. (laughs) It isn't that technical. I mean, I guess the thing with dry powder is that doesn't have to just be kept in like actual cash in a bank, does it? You have a bit more options there because if it goes down a bit, it's not the end of the world. You can put it in things like short duration government bonds. You know, they're less volatile and typically they'd have a bit more juice in terms of return. Maybe you'd put it in an investment grade credit that does suffer small drawdowns. But, you know, the more risk you pile on, the more risk there is of a drawdown just as you need it. So you probably want to avoid taking too much risk. Do you keep dry powder? Do you keep some cash back in case you see the brilliant opportunities? Yeah, I'm doing that right now. In fact, for my fund portfolio, I think about 40% of it right now, just off the top of my head, is in cash. Oh, Ramin, don't have too much fun. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, I got so burnt with a few things I did do that were fun that I've just been put off the concept of fun altogether. But I'm ready. So when it happens, you know, I will fill my boots. But we really haven't had a cheap opportunity recently. Not at the broad market level, probably. Well, maybe in the COVID downturn, right? Yeah, the COVID downturn. Like spring 2020, it looked attractive. But it was scary, as it always is when it looks attractive. (laughs) Until Jerome Powell launched the Fed hedge fund, which started buying up junk bonds. Why didn't Jerome Powell give you a heads up, your buddy? (laughs) You think he owes you one by now. I mean, so we've talked about emergency fund, dry powder, but there are other reasons, aren't there? So there's spending that you might be planning, you know, maybe five years into the future, your kid's going to college or you plan to buy a house. 
and there's that call on capital coming and you want to plan for it and you want to make sure the money's there and the right amount of money's there when you need it. Yeah, so five years or less, I'd say, is the kind of cutoff for when, you know, you want a significant cash or very low risk investment because that's where you really can't afford a big crash. So I think beyond 10 years is when you really don't want any cash at all or any kind of cash-like instruments. Oh, interesting, because some people, even for their long-term portfolios, are holding a bit of cash in there just as like a way to reduce volatility or whatever it might be. Can do, but personally, I wouldn't. I just think it doesn't really have a place there. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. But if you look at some of the off-the-shelf portfolios, which are meant to avoid massive drawdowns, they'll have, I don't know, 20% in short-term treasuries, for example. Yeah, and things which they call short-term government bonds, which is very cash-like. So a lot of those things like the all-weather portfolio have really chunky allocations to cash-like investments. But, you know, for me, I just keep it in something which has a big risk premium, which is equity. Because that is the other reason why people typically hold cash positions is they get scared or there's economic uncertainty or even just uncertainty around their own personal situation. Like if you think you might lose your job in the next year, maybe you want to hold a bit more cash. There is another example, which is some people just don't need to take risk. So if you've got a huge amount of cash, you've sold your business and you've got more money than you'd ever need, then, you know, there is no hurry. Inflation will be eroding it, of course very rapidly at the moment. But usually that 2% shrinkage of your buying power year on year isn't really a huge ticking time bomb. All you have to really do in that situation is beat inflation, which you can do with very little risk. Not right now, but generally. Generally, yeah. (laughs) Everyone listening to this is going to be, tell me where, Romin, (laughs) tell me where. My 10% cash account, yeah. All right, well, tell us where. So when you're thinking about cash, right, There's options, isn't there? So you've got your bank account, which... Is probably the worst place to go, yeah. But why is it the worst place to go? Shouldn't banks be offering us good rates when the central bank is hiking up the rate? Why don't the interest rates they're offering to savers go up quickly? Well, the way people refer to that kind of money, the money in your bank account, is callable cash. Why callable? Because you can call on it, the client can call on it at any point in time. So from the point of view of the banker, it's awful because it's not reliable. It's a way of funding the bank. Deposits are a way of funding the bank. An important way of funding the bank. And it's not very competitive. The rate that you offer on that, particularly for callable cash, is very low because you don't want people to have lots of callable cash. Because let's say that suddenly people start spending hugely. It's going to massively deplete the liability side of your balance sheet. And that's not something that you want, because if your balance sheet suddenly shrinks, then you know, you've know you got some kind of mismatch. You can't fund as many assets just when things are taking off, because that's probably when people will you know, be running down their deposit accounts. So callable cash is like a dirty word, and you don't want to give people too much money, too much interest for those callable funds. And I think the other point is that retail banks are typically not really competing for our money just based on the interest rate. So they're offering lots of add-ons and incentives and services to us as consumers. And we might be picking the bank account based on that, right? We're not just going, who has the absolute highest percentage I'm going to get on my money? And it's definitely true that bank accounts are sticky. People don't move their bank very often in their life. Because it's such a pain to do. If you've got lots of payments set up and you have to transfer them all, it's just an absolute nightmare. And I think that's why people tend to be loyal to their bank. It's not loyalty, it's just laziness. And I think, you know, while 
while it's so difficult to switch, then, you know, there's not going to be a lot of competition between them for that rate. The thing is, in the UK, they made it much easier to switch with this current account switching service. But even now, people are very loyal or sticky to their bank account because the markets authority looked at it and said, this is not a really competitive market. People aren't moving enough. Let's make it easy. So the banks have to compete properly, but it's not really played out. It's helped, but yeah. But look, if you've got the ability to have term deposits, and I think some of the banks call it a bond, although it's not a bond at all, you know, that's different. If you can put aside the money for a year, two years, five years, that's when they offer much more competitive rates. Because they're not nervous that you're going to pull your cash and run. Yeah. But remember, the thing to remember there is that you're funding the bank. So just be clear that's what you're doing. Look at the rate you're getting paid and think, look, is this worth it? Of course, it comes with a deposit guarantee in the UK, up to 85k. But just think about whether the rate you're getting might be better somewhere else. I've often wondered that if we deposit more than that 85k with a bank, are we effectively making an unsecured loan to the bank? Yeah, that's exactly what you're doing. And just think, look, is that what you want to do with your capital? Do you want your capital to be funding that bank? Or, you know, would you rather use it for something more productive? So what are the other options then? If we're saying bank accounts are typically not going to be the highest payers, they might be good for your emergency fund because you can get the money quickly. But if we're looking beyond bank accounts, where are we looking? So if we're talking about things you can put in an investment account, then we're talking about things like money market funds. Now, these are just regular funds, but they come with a special safety proviso such that they can't buy anything which is even remotely risky. So if there's even a faint waft of risk, they can't buy it. So what would that be? I mean, what is it that would go into these things? Well, government bonds from developed markets, which are about to mature, those will have a duration of, say, six months or less. That can go in. Very little credit risk and pretty good return now. Or commercial paper. So this would be loans to companies which are very short in duration and of very high credit quality. Certificates of deposit. So again, loans to banks, short-term loans to banks, and reverse repo. That's another huge category. And in fact, if you look at a Vanguard money market fund right now, a huge proportion of it is reverse repos with the Fed. Okay, you should probably just explain quickly what is a reverse repo. (laughs) What's a repo? I mean, you reversed it. (laughs) So from the point of view of the bank, reverse repo is a loan to the Fed. And in return for that loan, the Fed gives US Treasuries to the bank to hold on its balance sheet. So it's a collateralized loan. And it's a loan which gives you a higher rate of interest than, say, cash. Okay, so it's a way to park money in the short term and generate an income for people who hold the money market fund. Yeah. Why do they have to give everything such a complex name? Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) the point with money market funds is they're seen as very, very safe, which immediately makes me think, well, are they? Are they actually as safe as holding cash? So breaking the buck is what money market funds mustn't do. If you put a dollar in, you must be able to take a dollar out. Of course, I mean a pound as well. But one fund did break the buck and it was a really big deal. This was in September 2008 and it was the reserve primary fund and its value fell to, brace yourself, 97 cents. So it was down 3%. Now that doesn't sound like anything. If you're an equity investor, that would be like a one hour move. But for a money market fund, that was a world-shattering disaster. What was the consequences of that then, of this world-shattering disaster? 
outflows. So people pull their money out because if you break the buck, you've broken the code of conduct in a way. You've broken the deal with your investors. And once you start getting the capital outflows, then you get the contagion because they have to sell stuff. So, you know, it was just an unpleasant scenario. What? So they're dumping all these treasuries and other short dated debt and corporate paper back onto the market quickly as redemptions come in. Yeah. And then some of those markets dried up. So asset backed commercial paper, which was some of the stuff that was in there, that market dried up. And then I guess people get scared about other money market funds, don't they? And that's right. Panic ensues. <laughs> then you get the contagion. Yeah. Because I guess the point is you think, okay, a money market fund shouldn't be subject to a bank run because it holds all this stuff, which is low volatility and it's backing all the cash so it can just give you your money back. But the things in it can be volatile in like the worst case. So is it runnable? Yeah, it is runnable money. So people define it as such. So if you look at the Fed's financial stability report, it defines it as runnable. And it's huge. That's the other problem. It's so destabilizing when it does fall. So, for example, in the US, the total financial assets of money market funds are over $5 trillion. Huge. But would you be comfortable just holding them as more or less cash? Well, as long as you don't confuse it with money, because I think that was a problem. People assumed that a dollar in a money market fund was like a dollar in their pocket. Not true. It isn't money. It's money-like. It's cash-like, but it isn't cash. They should really change the name of it, shouldn't they? Yeah. Money-ish market fund. <laughs> Funny money fund. Yeah. But do you hold a money market fund? Yes. I mean, a lot of the pension crafters, they like an ETF, which is called CSH Stoop. Not a recommendation. But this is a fund which tracks an index called Sonia, who... Who? Shouldn't you say which? <laughs> it's not actually a person. I just like the idea of an index called Sonia. I think that's really good. This is the replacement for LIBOR, isn't it, effectively? Yeah, so it stands for Sterling Overnight Index Average, and it's the replacement for LIBOR. But it is a very safe, short-term interest rate. And it's based on the rate banks are paying to lend to each other? That's right. And it's an overnight rate, so it's very low credit risk baked into it. So we'll be very close to the Bank of England bank rate. So this money market fund you mentioned, CSH2, it kind of tracks this Sonia thing somehow. That's right. And it's even more complex because it uses a swap to do it. And if you look at their web page, it actually holds a bunch of assets, which are equity, simply to collateralize the swap inside it. But it is not an equity fund and it does not have the volatility of an equity fund. But it does have some fairly complex financial plumbing to make it work which confuses people. I mean, it sounds kind of complex, and I just have to trust it works. In a way, it's like that quote from Arthur C. Clarke, which is, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that's kind of what this money market fund is to me. It magically tracks this short-term interest rate, and I'm just going to trust that it works. And for once, it's me coming up with a sci-fi quote, isn't I it? I know, I was going to say, Michael, this is my I've job. I've been spending way too much time with you. <laughs> I love Arthur C. Clarke. That was the first sci-fi I read. Anyway, the way this thing works, if you plot its price, it's an accumulation fund. So its price will reflect the rate of income. In other words, the gradient, if you plot it, gets steeper when interest rates increase. And then when interest rates are close to zero, it kind of flattens out. I mean, the way I think of it is it just picks up the latest interest rates quite quickly which some instruments don't. Like we talked about savings accounts typically don't pick it up quickly, whereas this does. 
Or people will say, look, I've got a long duration bond fund, which has got 20 year plus bonds in it. How come the rate of interest hasn't gone up on it for the coupons inside it? Well, that's because it takes a long time for those coupons to turn over as the bonds mature and new ones replace them. Whereas for short duration funds, this churning process is very rapid because none of the stuff in it is going to last longer than six months before being replaced. So that's a positive thing when interest rates are going up. But the risk is when interest rates start falling. So the reinvestment risk is significant because if rates do fall, let's say, unbelievably, from our point of view now, that inflation does start to fall significantly, then the Bank of England will cut rates and the short-term interest rates will fall. The gradient of the CSH2 thing will flatten and there's not much you can do about it. You haven't locked in a rate. Yeah, but why is that a problem, right? You're not going to make a capital loss. You can just sell it, get your capital back and put it to work in, you know, whatever investment you want now. That's right. And that's what people would do. It's just that you haven't locked in the rate, which some people might feel that they have. And if you want to lock in a rate, is that when we start talking about buying bonds? Exactly. Yeah. So that's when you'd kind of extend the maturity of the investments or even go for single bonds, because that might be an interesting way to kind of lock in the rate for longer. Because it's interesting right now when you look at government bonds that the yield curve is in a strange place, isn't it? At least parts of it are inverted in the UK and I think in the US as well. Which is very odd because normally what happens is the yield curve is upward sloping. If you lend money to the UK government for a year, you'd usually get a much lower rate of interest than if you lend for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because you think, oh, if I'm going to give my money and lock it up for 30 years, potentially, you better pay me for that. <laughs> yeah, and that's called term premium. You know, you do expect to be compensated for it. But at the moment, the term premium is negative, which is very weird. But why, Roman? <laughs> but why does the world not make any sense? <laughs> but it kind of does make sense. If you look at the cycle what you'll see is if you plot the one-year rate versus a 30-year rate over a 40-year, 50-year period, what you'll notice is the short-term rate is kind of flopping up and down as the central bank raises rates and reduces interest rates to stimulate the economy or slow down inflation. The long end of the curve is much more sedate. That's kind of like an economic barometer which looks at nominal growth expectations. Nominal because it includes real growth. GDP growth, as well as inflation expectations. So for developed markets, usually that would be hovering at around, I don't know, 5% the long end of the curve. So think of that as kind of locked in position. And then the short end of the curve will be flopping up and down. So the curve will be steepening and flattening to represent what the Fed's doing or what the Bank of England's doing. And at the moment, what's happening is the short end of the curve is being whacked up really aggressively and quickly. The long end of the curve is saying, hmm, growth isn't great, inflation's high. So the long end isn't really moving that much. And so what's happening is the curve's inverting. So does the shape of this curve being inverted right now tell us anything about what the market expects of the future path of interest rates? Right? Is it expecting rates to then come down? Because I'm just thinking, why would we ever buy you know, a 30-year bond right now when we can get a higher interest rate for a six-month bond? You can back out expected rates from the curve to work out something called the forward curve. And that's what people say, that the expectation is that rates are going to fall in future because the Fed's going to have to pivot or because inflation's going to come down and they're just going to have to loosen monetary policy. 
Because in theory, shouldn't it be something like the reason we might buy a 30-year bond is because, you know, we're fixing that interest rate for 30 years. And if you bought a six-month bond, then rates might be down. And like, if you piece together six month, then six month, then six month, and keep doing that for 30 years, it should roughly equal the 30-year bond? Like, that's what the market's expecting or not? Am I just making that up? The actual arbitrage wouldn't be the spot six-month rate. This is going to make your ears bleed, I can tell. <laughs> Ramin, I'm prepared. So let's say you're going to do it with one-year rates instead of six months. So what you do is you'd say, let's say you've got a three-year rate, okay? Think about it like jumping through time. You can either do it with one hop over three years, or you can do three little hops of one year at a time. But to get from one year in the future to two years in the future, you'd have to lock in a rate called the forward rate. You can actually do that. You can trade that with the bank. So you go for the one-year spot rate to take you from one year to two years, and then you'd use the one-year to two-year forward rate, and then the two-year to three-year forward rate. And if you chain those together, you'll have an exact arbitrage relationship for the three-year. I know this is going to surprise you, but that is kind of what I was trying to say. I just didn't have the words to say it. (laughs) (laughs) But that arbitrage relationship is tradable. So that will be perfectly in line, almost to within a few basis points. You know, those arbitrage relationships are strong. But I've seen some people on Twitter, for example, saying, oh, look, you can just read off the future rate expectations from the spot curve. You can't do that. You know, that's, that's ridiculous. It requires a little bit of extra work. Even I know that's ridiculous. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, people expect rates are going to go down in the future, which is not unreasonable to short term rates. I mean, they have to expect that, right? Because otherwise there would be no reason to buy a long bond right now. That's right. And you'd be crazy to lock in that duration because effectively at the moment, you're being paid not to take risk if you've got these inverted yield curves. So there's an incredibly attractive rate of income for taking almost no duration risk right now. So it is kind of looking a gift horse in the mouth if you don't buy one of these money market funds. And the other thing I saw was... Like you say, you can't read off rate expectations off the spot curve. The other thing I saw is you can't just take the spot inflation rate right now and say the 10-year government bond is therefore hugely negative in real terms. You need to compare it to the 10-year expected rate of inflation. Yeah, that's why we need the break-evens. And that's one of the things that's really hard to find on the Bank of England website. You literally have to download a zip file, unzip it, and then find the correct curve in that. It's just so hard. If we say that enough times on the podcast, Andrew Bailey will eventually get his act together, won't he? Come on, Andrew, pull yourself together. Pull your zip file. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, his zip file's flying low. That's another mistake I see, is that people look at the 10-year yield, for example, and say, oh, inflation's 10% now, whatever it is. Therefore, it's deeply negative in real terms. But that doesn't really make sense because the inflation, what we have is just right now. It's not going to be the same rate of inflation for 10 years. And one of the things the Fed looks at is the five-year, five-year inflation rate, which is the expectation of five-year inflation, but starting in five years' time. So it's like a forward that we were just talking about, but for inflation, because that reflects expectations about inflation. So it's a really important thing from their point of view that that remains anchored at 2%. Okay, so we've got heavy into bonds here, but let's bring it back to like cash. We're kind of talking about cash. What bond is appropriate as a quasi-cash safe-ish investment? So there are a couple of ways of doing it. You can either take a really old bond, which is just about to mature, or 
you can go for short dated government bonds. So these would be bills in the United States and in the UK. We don't issue many of these, but you can get some short dated government bonds here as well. So what you're saying is you really should be looking at short dated bonds because their volatility is lower and they're therefore safer than long dated. Yeah, unless you think interest rates are about to fall, in which case you might want to lock in a rate for longer with a longer duration bond. But certainly at the moment, what's really attractive is anything which is six months or less. That's a really juicy part of the curve. And I know I'm going to regret asking this question. <laughs> does it matter if we buy individual bonds or a bond fund? Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. And in fact, at the moment, so many of the power hours are with people who want to talk about bond ladders. I think people don't realise how easy it is. A lot of the brokers are quite reluctant to do this stuff, so you can't trade it electronically. It's not that easy then if I have to pick up the phone. I'm a millennial, I hate picking up the phone. <laughs> yeah, who wants to do that? You have to talk to someone and say, hi, I'd like to buy this bond, please. All right, let's step back. What is a bond ladder before we get too into this? Okay, so a bond ladder is when you buy a sequence of bonds, a group of bonds, a portfolio of bonds, which mature with regularly spaced dates. You could buy a one-year bond, which matures in a year, a two-year bond, and a three-year bond. So three rungs in the ladder, spaced equally apart in time. And when one matures, then you get your money back, you get your principal, and then you think, okay, now I'm going to buy a new three-year bond. And that way, by keeping the conveyor belt going, you're always earning whatever's on the yield curve at that time. Okay. First question is, why would we want that rather than just holding the money market fund? Well, the thing is, you hold these things to maturity usually, or you can. You can do anything you want, really. But of course, most people hold it to maturity. And that way, let's say that a bond falls from 100 to 50. Now, if you're a bond holder, you don't have to sell it. You just wait till it matures. And there's a magical effect in bonds called pull to par, where just as it's about to mature, the value of the bond equals its par amount. So it'll go back to 100. If it was trading at 50, doesn't matter. It's going to end up at 100. And you know that for certain if it's a government bond. For a corporate bond, different story. It might default. But for a government bond, pull to par tells you exactly what you're going to get at the maturity date. Now, with a money market fund, the rate of interest that you earn depends on what the central bank's doing with what's happening with inflation, because that'll affect monetary policy. So the rate you receive will be variable based on that short-term policy rate. Whereas with a bond ladder, you lock in exactly the rate of return the day you buy the bond. You know what the yield is going to be, you know what the cash flows are going to be to the day, to the penny. That's just beautiful in terms of certainty. And it doesn't crash. It can't crash because the government won't default. Okay, let me try and unpick some of this. <laughs> <laughs> You said, okay, what happens if it crashes to 50% of its value? You can just hold it and then it goes back to par. I get my principal back at the end of the bond. Fine. But I'm immediately thinking, well, why is it crashed 50%? Does that not mean if I'd kept that money in a money market fund or it's just as cash at that point, I could get a much better yield? That's the implication, right? So I am losing in a kind of opportunity cost way with a bond ladder, potentially. It's not completely risk free in that sense. The risk is that interest rates increase and you're left stranded on the interest rate beach with low income. That's a risk. 
But it's a kind of nice risk, I think, because it means you won't make a loss. In nominal terms. In nominal terms. Because interest rates would be going up because inflation's high, right? That would be usually what's going on. Yeah, and you don't want that to happen, clearly. But you're not going to make a 60% loss, which you would have done if you had a bond fund. But you don't have to sell the bond fund either. This is why I've never quite understood why you would go for a bond ladder over a bond fund. You've got more control, I'd say, over the maturities and also over when you sell. Because let's say another scenario might be that interest rates generally fall. So your portfolio of bonds suddenly looks really attractive because you've frozen in a high rate of interest. So for you, at that point, you can actually sell the bonds before maturity. Most people hold to maturity, but this would be an opportunity to sell early because you could sell at a big premium. But your bond fund would have also had a massive capital gain in that situation. It's not like you're not benefiting from that fall in interest rates. Yeah. So the difference between a bond fund and a bond ladder is really about your choice about when to sell or whether to sell, because you don't have to sell. And you can be specific, right, about the duration. Maturities and coupons. Yeah. Because I often think if you had like a bond fund with an average duration of five years and a bond ladder with the average duration of all those bonds in it were five years, I don't think there's a huge difference. If you psychologically know that you're not going to sell in a crash of the bond fund, I don't think there's that much difference. And in America, you've got a choice of, you know, there are other safe bonds you can buy, like municipal bonds, which have got a huge tax break. In the UK, you've also got the choice of corporate bonds. And in the UK, another attraction right now is that if you buy bonds outside an ISA or a SIP, you don't pay capital gains on those. If they're gilts. And some corporate bonds as well. You don't pay capital gains on them. Now, why is that kind of interesting? Well, if you've used up your ISA and your SIP allocation, or you've got huge amounts of money in your general investment account, then you can go for those bonds which were issued during the zero interest rate period, which was very long. And those have a very small income. But if the total return is about 4%, then you know that if the coupon's an eighth of a percent, all the rest of the gain is going to come from capital gain. So by buying low coupon bonds, of which there are many at the moment, you minimise your tax liability even outside an ISA or a SIP. So that's another conversation I've been having with a lot of clients right now. So those low coupon bonds were ones which were issued before rates started to rise. Exactly, because they freeze in a rate. Think of it like amber, where you freeze a mosquito or something into the amber. Did you watch Jurassic Park last night? (laughs) (laughs) No, but I've watched all of them many times. That's the way to think of a bond. It freezes in the shape of the yield curve when it's issued, and it keeps that for the entire lifetime of the bond. Okay, for anyone that's still listening, I've got a couple more questions now. (laughs) Never get Robin started on bonds. What was I thinking? So I just want to think about currency quickly. If I'm a UK investor, does it make sense for me to buy any bonds that aren't denominated in sterling? And if I do, should I hedge them? Well, just as with an equity portfolio, you can diversify your yield curve exposure. Now, if you're worried about a particular country's yield curve spiking upwards because, I don't know, you've got morons in government, Well, if you diversify, you're not so worried about that. If you've got exposure to the US yield curve, the UK yield curve, and developed markets generally, that will probably be less volatile than just one country. And if we were buying, you know, a bit of US, a bit of European bond exposure alongside UK, for instance, if we're in the UK, does it make sense to currency hedge those? Yeah, most people, when they do currency hedge funds, 
it's usually the bond funds which they currency hedge. Because if your volatility is low, which it usually is for a bond fund, then you don't want it to be swamped with currency risk. Particularly if you buy short dated government bonds, because those are effectively super safe, you know, vols 1%. Yeah, it's kind of like if you didn't hedge short-dated US debt, for instance, you're just buying dollars, really, and taking exchange rate risk. Yeah, you're just buying a currency fund. Yeah. I mean, I think the point is that even though we're looking at, hopefully, really safe short-term investments, these things can get quite complicated, as we've shown. And part of me thinks, even if you're not getting the absolute optimal rate, you must invest in something you understand. Because otherwise, if something goes a bit weird, a bit quirky, you might do the wrong thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true of any investment. If you're really having trouble understanding it, just keep away. Do your research. And then only when you feel you understand it, should you invest in it. Because like you said, a bond ladder isn't actually that complicated conceptually. You're stringing together some short dated bonds. But your execution has to be spot on if you don't want to take risk that you're not expecting. And you get things like dirty price, clean price, gross redemption yield. And all of these things are scary. Or at least they sound scary until you understand it. Yeah. And ultimately, we don't want cash to be scary. Equity's scary enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Now, PensionCraft members get access to a huge library of explainers, which explain concepts like building a bond ladder. If you want to learn more about that and becoming a member, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week. What is a bank? Now. This maybe sounds like I've reached the pinnacle of dumb questions. I think, what is a bank, Roman? Surely we all know what a bank is. Well, it's not that simple because there are so many companies which do the same function as a bank. They're not officially banks. I mean, this is what McCulley famously called the shadow banking system. And that's what's blurred the lines. So, for example, if you've got a fund which takes deposits effectively, and then converts that into longer term maturities, which is what a bond fund is, well, that maturity transformation is one of the functions of a bank. So a bank is taking money off you and I, paying us 3% and lending it out and receiving 6% in interest. But that loan is a a five-year duration, whereas we can pull our money anytime, right? So that's what you mean by maturity transformation? That's it. And that's one of the functions of banks. So that's one role of a bank then, maturity transformation. What other roles does it have? Like what makes it a bank? Making loans is another one. And there are other institutions which can do that. You don't necessarily have to have presence on a high street or all the other functions that go with it in order to do that. I mean, anyone can make a loan, right? So I don't know if that's what defines what a bank is. It's certainly one of their functions. I think what really distinguishes them is the way they're regulated. Because to get a banking license, you have to have certain requirements about your financial stability, the governance of the bank, and certain reserve requirements of how much capital you have to have. So if you haven't seen it, there's a very good film on Netflix, which is The Bank of Dave which is a story about a man in Burnley who is kind of salt of the earth. He lends money to some of his friends and small businesses in order to keep them going. Is his name Dave by any chance? His name is Dave. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) good. (laughs) But he has real trouble trying to get a banking licence. And it's just a great film. Very good feel-good film. But anyway, it tells you about the kind of hurdles which you have to go through to get a banking licence. So I think from the regulatory point of view, it's a very clear distinction. Because what's interesting is if you listen to economists, which I sometimes do, they say that 
the banks we're talking about here, retail banks, actually create money. That's their function in the economy. And that's what they can do through making loans, because literally the money comes out of nowhere. So the way it works, as I understand it, is they can make as many loans as they want for as much value as they want, really, as long as they hold a certain percentage of that as safe assets on their balance sheet. So maybe you hold 10 million in assets and therefore you can loan out whatever it might be, 80, 90 million. So that money is coming from nowhere, really. But there are certain risks that come with that, which is the increase in the size of the balance sheet. And you've got the loans which themselves can go bad in a recession, for example. So they do have to set aside regulatory capital. They usually set aside extra capital if they think they're entering a period of higher defaults. And what's interesting is there's something called the multiplier effect, isn't it? Because if you think about it, if you created all this money through loans, the people you've given that money to might go and put that money into another bank account. Therefore, it can then be loaned out at a multiple again. And this can kind of go around the flywheel and you end up with loads more money in the economy. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's a thing. <laughs> but it is a thing. So what surprises a lot of people, they think that it's actually the central bank printing all the money. Well, actually, most money creation happens via commercial banks. And maybe the third important function I've heard for retail banks is that they transmit monetary policy into the economy. So you might say, OK, the central bank doesn't print the broad money supply, but the decisions it makes kind of work their way through the commercial banking system. What that means in practice is if you're a company and you need a loan or if you're just a normal person and you want a loan, how easy is it to get that loan? And central banks, when they're trying to stimulate the economy by lowering interest rates, they want that money to go into the real economy. And how can they do that? Well, they can't force banks to lend. They can't hold a gun to the head of every commercial bank and say, you have to make this loan. But they want that to happen if possible. And for example, in Europe, we have the Tiltro scheme where if you had lots of loans to the real economy, you got preferential funding from the ECB. And it was pretty effective. It wasn't a gun held to the head of the bank manager. It was kind of like a carrot. <laughs> He's held a carrot to his head. <laughs> <laughs> this was very effective. It made banks want to lend because they got, you know, really cheap funding and it increased their profitability. But that's also why the Fed has the SLUS survey, the Senior Loan Officers survey, because that monitors whether banks actually are lending. And one of the functions of the central bank we don't think about that much is it can alter the reserve requirements of a bank, can't it? It could say you can now hold less capital against your loans than you used to have to. So now you can make more loans or you can increase the reserve requirements and therefore adjust the money supply in the economy. It's not all about interest rates and printing money. And usually in developed markets, that doesn't happen too much. In China, for example, the RRR, which is unpronounceable, is something which they vary quite a bit. You can pronounce it, but you just sound like a pirate. RRR. <laughs> but I think the other point is that people don't know the difference between different types of banks. So you've got investment banks, which essentially perform functions for companies, but also do wealth management for ultra high net worth clients. Then you've got the central banks that set the monetary policy and also do regulation. And then you've got shadow banks, which perform the functions of banks, but aren't banks or aren't regulated as them. But I think people don't discriminate between these different types of banks. And they talk about bankers and they don't really understand, you know, the flavours of banker. So when we talk about the banks blowing up the world and the economy, which kind of bank are we talking about? Or is it all of them? 
Well, I think at the moment it's the shadow banks, which are the most risky part of the system, because they're not regulated. And things like stablecoin, which perform the functions of a bank, don't have any of those regulations in place, or at least not yet. I think they will. And they're also very much like money market funds, but they don't have the money market fund regulations, which is crazy. So this is a kind of cryptocurrency which tracks the price of a dollar, for example. Like a money market fund. So you put in a dollar into one of these stable coins and it'll always be worth a dollar. That's the idea. How do they achieve that? They invest in things like commercial paper and short-term government bonds. So exactly the same stuff. Yeah, it's just an unregulated money market fund. Yeah. I don't see any practical difference. They've just called it something different and said, please don't regulate us. (laughs) (laughs) This is a good trick. Banks have been doing that for years. And just to wrap up, I've heard it said that basically every company, if it's successful over the long term, turns into a bank. As in, you either go bankrupt or live long enough to become a bank. And you think about it with, let's say, car manufacturers, the way they offer loans and the way they make profits is really from the financing of people buying the cars. And you're seeing it with Apple now moving into payment services and Apple Pay. And is it true that everything just becomes a bank? Well, when you have a certain amount of money, then eventually you're going to talk about making that money work for you as an institution. And the way to do that is to become a lender. So, yeah, I think it's kind of true in the sense that, you know, if you've got money, you're going to start using it and try and maximise its return. And it's always tempting to offer people credit to buy your own products. <laughs> That's a nice business model to have. China's been doing that for a long time. Because you earn from both sides of the transaction, don't you? You're making a margin on the product and you're making a margin on the money people are using to buy the product. That makes sense. You know, I think it makes sense to have that really strong relationship with people, which is both financial, but also for your goods and services. Let's just wait and see how many of these car loans go bad. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.